So here we are on Mother's Day. Um, Mother's Day is kind of the male pastor's um, annual dilemma because you're supposed to say some things about mothers, but being a father or a man, you feel a little hesitant to say anything. So, uh, so I was thinking about that, and as I was looking through the epistle of First Peter that we're going through, uh, lo and behold, just a chapter away from where we are, I came across a passage that is about wives submitting to their husbands. And I thought to myself, oh no, I don't think I want to do that. But then I realized that there's not a live audience here. So this may be the safest time ever to do a sermon on Mother's Day by a male pastor to women. But anyway, I, I promise you something. There may be rotten tomatoes that are in the, in the works, but by the end of the talk today, I promise you, it will not be the women who want to throw the rotten tomatoes. It'll be the men. I promise you that. So bear with me as we try to learn together from um, Peter's letter to the uh, Jewish Christians who have been scattered throughout Asia Minor. Um, I, I am going to out guys, so I may as well just sort of declare that, and, and so the guys will be watching me, me with suspicion for the rest of the time. Hopefully, um, I ha will have eased um, the ladies' um, hesitations, and we can just all listen together in a happy, friendly way. But I will out, guys. Um, by the time I'm done today, I hope you'll understand how these couple of things that guys say make total sense. So here, here's one of them. Um, he, he's breaking up with his girlfriend and he, he, he's trying to think of just the right thing to say and he finally decides that he's going to say this it's a kind of a classic line but he says it's not you it's me right it's not you it's me I'm going to tell you today why that makes theological sense okay Second thing is it may show up in one form or another, but um, when a wife says to her husband in, in the middle of, you know, I, I don't know, some time when they're sitting together, it, it becomes quiet, and she says, what are you thinking? And he says, nothing. He's telling her the truth. It, it is absolutely possible for guys not to think or to think nothing and, and when your wife asks you what are you thinking you you begin to panic because you realize that actually you're thinking nothing well it's a true answer ladies and a little bit more um sort of uh, problematic is when she says to him what were you thinking and his answer is the true answer as well when he says, I wasn't. Okay. I'm going to tell you today why theologically those comments on guys' parts are true comments, true statements. So I hope that kind of sets the stage and it has um, alerted the men who are paying attention that I'm saying some things about them and they may not be too happy that I'm going to say those things 
And there are some ladies who thought they don't want to hear some male pastor talking about women submitting to their husbands, but now maybe you are interested because I'm going to give you a clue into the way your husband's mind works. So we are in First Peter, and you will see the, the passage. It's a long one from First Peter chapter 3. And I, I'll read the whole passage so that we get the context And then I'm going to zero in on just a few verses from which we'll try to learn some lessons today. So here it is from 1 Peter chapter 3 in the New American Standard where we're told this. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands as so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We're going to talk just about the few verses that begin that whole passage. I don't know if I want to get into the whole thing about did Sarah really obey Abraham, her Lord? Um, maybe another time for that kind of Old Testament debate. But but we will come to the kind of the heart of the passage uh, and try to figure out what it means when Peter is telling the wives in these scattered churches um, to be submissive to their husbands. So... As we do that today, um, there are three things that I think we have to carefully unpack. So all kidding aside, to understand um, what it is that Peter is proposing for these these families, husbands and wives, um, who are scattered. Three questions that I think have to be answered, are, or at least have to be attempted. First of all, what did this mean in the setting of Peter's readings. Uh, Secondly, what biblical theology is the timeless setting of this passage? And then thirdly, what does this mean in the setting of today's readers? So if you were one of the original readers, what did it mean to you to read these instructions from Peter? in back of what he's saying and what you're hearing, what is the biblical overarching theology that informs what Peter's saying? And then as we bring those two things forward, 
Uh, finally, what does this mean in the setting of today's readers as we find ourselves actually listening to these same words and finding that some of the language is kind of strange to us, some of the ideas are also difficult for us, and so we need to, to just sort of maneuver ourselves into the proper place of seeing the passage in its original setting, in its biblical setting, and now finally in its contemporary setting. So first of all, the question is this. What did this mean in the setting of Peter's readers? Um, I want to ask the, f the first question towards that and, and answer it as clearly as I can. Somebody might be saying, well, isn't all scripture timeless or cultural-less? When, when speakers begin to say, here's what this really means, and it sounds to you as though it was clear what it really means. You may not like what it really means, but when people begin to say, well, in the day in, what, in which it was written, it, me, it means this or that, you think, really? You get a little bit kind of you know, suspicious and you wonder, can I trust what the person's saying? So, so, so the question, if we're going to say there's any other way than just saying this is just a timeless, forever way that people need to behave, husbands and wives. Um, really, isn't, isn't there just one approach to, th to things, of understanding things and so on? So, so let me give you an example of a situation in the New Testament um, t in which the Apostle Paul speaks, and he, he says some things that honestly we have to say, we don't understand what he's saying, except that there is something culturally um, that informs it so that the first readers would, would get what we don't get. So there's a part in Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, doesn't creation itself, or doesn't nature itself, show you that, it, that if a man has long hair, it's a shame? And... We, when we read that and we imagine that he's us asking us the question, I, I think we would basically say, no, it doesn't. Does, does nature or creation itself tell us that it's a shame for a man to have long hair? Um, s similarly, as he goes on, on on the same topic of hair, which I'm particularly interested in, by the way, um, he tells women that they should either be shorn or covered if if they're if if they're going to glory in their hair and 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 you think really is is that something that is timeless and culturalless or do we have to say no as as much as it is as it is hard for us to figure out what the culture and 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 time historical setting is we'd have to say that there's some things at play um, that are, are not timeless. They are, they are cultural and historic applications of some things that, that are beyond time. So the question, isn't all scripture timeless and culturalless? And, and we say, well, no, not actually, because the way that scripture is formed, the way that the narrative comes forward, uh, sometimes... Um, is is simply reflecting 
a cultural or a geographic or a, a historic setting in which it's being said. So um, when we come to First Peter, we have to ask, well, are, how much do we know about what it was like um, to be a woman in the the diaspora, this Christian diaspora, as you've been sent away from home, um, you're among strangers in the, the middle of Asia Minor. So the second question um, getting at, the big question, what did this mean in the setting of Peter's readers, is this, what was it like to be a displaced Jewish Christian woman in Asia Minor in the AD 50s? So as we read in the literature, and there's lots of it that um, has to do with this period of, of, of time, um, the, the concept of paterfamilias was, was dominant. So paterfamilias simply means father families. So the, the absolutely typical kind of family that existed was a patriarchal, father-focused, father-led, father-dominant gathering of relatives in a household. Um, That was by far um, the model of family, the model of households that existed in in those those times. Um, The father-centered, patriarchal, paternalist sort of configuration. And along with that um, came a whole lot of associated um, values and practices that that we get to kind of line up and, and sort through. However, when a woman came to become a follower of Jesus in that setting, there were some things that fundamentally changed um, that kind of released her from um, this whole paterfamilias model or understanding of things. Uh, There's one, she's actually a a feminist um, theologian, uh, Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza, who says that the threat to patriarchy was a primary attraction for women and slaves because the Christian message promised them a new freedom in the community of equals. Um, So into this father-centered, male-centered, male-dominant culture where everything was ordered and orderly according to the head of the household comes this message um, which kind of chips away sociologically at the way people expected to live. And one of the things that happened was that there were various members of the household who began to look at themselves differently than they used to. One group was the group of servants where they were hearing things that had a lot to do with freedom and they were hearing a lot of things that had to do with the the narrative history of Israel um, being servants and slaves and being set free from their servanthood and from their slavery. 
Um, and while there are all kinds of correctives on this kind of rampant emancipation, what is that word? Emancipation. Being set free. Um, there still was, was this notion that do we have to keep living and behaving the way we did if we are in Christ? And w when it came then as well to the, the place of wives and women in society, um, they too, you know, perhaps when they would um, be with the children, doing their proper cultural thing and gathering, they might begin to talk and they would talk about this whole freedom that there was in Christ. In fact, um, in the Corinthian situation, the Corinthian church, um, really strange things began to happen um, as it related to the, the gathering of women with men in the, the churches. Um, they, there are passages in Corinthians that say things like, let the women be quiet. If they want to learn things, they should ask their husbands at home. And there again is a question where you have to say, whoa, really, are you serious? Is that like forever in all settings? And you might say, well, hang on. Let's have a look. Let's wonder if something is going on in Corinth that would make that um, a practical application or, or uh, you know, a, a corrective to something. And in, in fact, what theologians have proposed is that there were these eschatological women in Corinth and the way that they lived that out got to be way out of hand and extreme and they heard teachings about the gospel that in Christ there is neither male nor female and we'll talk about that today a little bit um, and, and they they got some correct or incorrect teaching about what it would be like in heaven. Um, were there men and women? And, well, th they were told there's no marriage and so on. And, and, and so there was a notion that began to grow. It, it became a heresy where, where the women of the Corinthian church, they're now called the Corinthian women, basically said we don't need men anymore. They're kind of, you know, unnecessary. And so the women engaged in a particular, um, sometimes actually ecstatic kind of, of worship and, and gathering um, that totally overwhelmed the men. And it, for them, was part of this whole freedom um, that came by being in Christ. And... So Peter was, was talking into a world in which there was this, this really seismic shift in the way that people viewed one another, particularly within the, um, the family structures. And, and so he is asking women um, about their behavior and their presentation against the context of a culture in which the father knew everything, did everything, ruled everything, um, and now which um, 
Christianity was saying, no, everything gets evened out in Christ. And the particular problem that Peter is addressing is that there appear to have been husbands in these households who had not come to follow Christ as their wives had. And so these wives are being set free by the gospel. Their husbands are not being set free by the gospel. Their husbands are still living with the sociology and the order of the day. And their wives may be exploring this new kind of freedom that they believe they have and know that they have theologically. Um, And they're kind of trying it out in terms of how they would express themselves. So how does the instruction of Peter make sense to the the wife in one of these um, father-centered families um, when Peter says to them, wives, you need to be submissive to your husbands? We're going to see this morning that, that submission is is um it's a two-way street it's a huge huge strategy and response to our sinfulness um but it but we will see that it's a a two-way street every time that we find it properly in the new testament it is about the way we all relate to one another and in specific um paul and peter will say when it comes to this relationship, you with you, you should practice submission like everyone should practice submission. Um, and maybe the way that submission will show up in the way that you live your life and the way that you live into your relationships is this way. So if we go a bit farther from that and, and say, well, I, against that kind of um, New Testament setting in which... Um, eyebrows would have been raised by these Christian women, by these new um, messianic women, Um, particularly when maybe their husbands are are not messianic people. They they have not followed the word, according to Peter. In, 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 In that day and age, Peter says, could I ask the wives to practice submission to your husbands. Um, In in fact, he goes back and he says, and so, because this is not the first time he's talking about submission, he has talked about uh, submission to to the, sort of the the governing officials around, to, to bosses and so on, to one another and so on. And this kind of carries on in another oh, and another instance of submission is. So that was the setting. And I think what Peter is saying is not to contradict the New Testament teaching about the equality of men and women, but to reorder things so that the, the family doesn't become a place of chaos and the Christian family doesn't become a place of disrepute because outsiders are looking at families and saying, he has no control of his wife. She seems to go off and do whatever she wants, and she calls it being a Jesus follower, and we know he's not really in favor of that. And so Peter says, you know what? For the sake of our neighborliness, 
there are certain things that, that I'm going to ask you to do. But let's make sure that we get this against the biblical theology of gender um, and see what is the timeless setting into which this fits. And, and then we'll see how it kind of moves forward to our understanding of what Peter is saying. So there are three things that I want to just comment on um, when it comes to the biblical theology. Uh, I want to talk about maleness and femaleness with reference to creation, maleness and femaleness with reference to the fall, and then maleness and femaleness with reference to the restoration in Christ. And many of these things I've talked with you about before, um, but, but they are the timeless, cultureless background to the geographic, temporal, and cultural setting into which Peter is writing. And then we'll try to wrap it up to get it back home to all the rest of us. First of all, the, the maleness and femaleness in creation. Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 are, are some of the most foundational and pivotal uh, verses in, in the Bible. So we have the story of creation in its, in its purest form, and we have God talking to himself, which is very important, and he says, let us make man in our image. So God is talking. He is saying, let us, first person plural, do something. Let us make man in our image. So the next verse, verse 27, says, so God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. It's a little poem, but the whole point of the poem um, is that, that God says, remember what we wanted to do was to create man, generically, in our image. And, and so that's what we have done. We have created man in our image. How does that get fleshed out a little bit more? It's male and female. He created them. So the image of God, by the grammar of this poem, is very clearly uh, to be our maleness and femaleness. It's, it's not that men are created in God's image and then women were made as well. Male and female, he created them. So the theology of creation around gender is absolutely clear that without our maleness and femaleness or however that's extended into community or pluralness, um, without that we don't express the image of God. The image of God is plural. It begins with God talking to himself in the plural, referring to himself in the plural, and then it's worked out in God creating plural beings. So maleness and femaleness, um, as far as creation is concerned, um, the image of God is that we are male and female. We are we. We are us. We are plural. And that's a, a, a something that lasts through the whole um, theology of the Bible, the whole formation of, of people in the Bible, of nations, of kingdom, all of that. Um, very little of the Bible has to do with the story of one person. 
if it if it does it's about the, that one person in relation to the people around her or around him so the, the theology of the bible that's in behind what we have in first peter um, is that in creation we male and female constitute the image of god the next thing to comment on this is um, maleness and femaleness with reference to the fall. So in Genesis 3, verse 16, we have a very dire prediction um, where because of the fact that Adam and Eve have have usurped God's authority um, and that has caused them no end of trouble, including being expelled from the garden, um, God says, now here's what's going to, to happen. Um, to the woman, he, he says, apart from telling men that it's going to be hard work for them from now on, and to saying to the women that having children is going to be hard work as well, he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And... Boy, that has been a little couplet that has caused trouble forevermore. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. What does that mean? And is is that um, a correction of the first thing that we've seen, which is the equality, men and women, male and female, as the image of God? In Genesis 4, verse 7, the very same Hebrew um, structure is found where God is talking to Cain and he's telling telling Cain that sin is going to be struggling with him. Sin is going to try to overwhelm him. Um, so he says to Cain, its desire is for you. It desires to have you, but you must conquer it. It's It's spun that way in the translation but the vocabulary is exactly the same as Genesis 3 verse 16 but we can understand what God is saying to Cain he's saying there's going to be a struggle sin is going to try to overcome you and you're going to have to overcome it in Genesis 3 16 what God is saying is that what we've brought upon ourselves is a disruption of, of the beautiful complementarity or mutual, mutuality of maleness and femaleness. And now, rather than just fitting together to happily be the image of God, he says to the woman, you're going to try to control your husband, but he's going to control you. So your desire is for your husband? but he will have mastery over you. He will um, control you. All kinds of ways we could try to to parse it out, but the point is that there's a struggle that ensues between men and women, um, and that came from our rebelling against God. And because of it, we lost our happy relationship. So you know the story how that from... The, the point of their fall on, men and women, instead of being happily face-to-face, 
they they sort of figuratively and literally turned their backs on each other and they began to hurl um, they began to hurt they began to blame they began to try to get the better of one another from um, that day forward thirdly in in sort of tidying up this biblical theology that's in back of first peter um, we're told in galatians 3 verse 28 that now things are back to normal so maleness and femaleness restored galatians 3:28 says in christ there is neither male nor female all right so uh, he say, he says there's also neither bond nor free um, you're you're all one you're all equal and this is the theology that is in back of the understanding of these um, Christian women, Jewish Christian women, who had become followers of Messiah with or without their husbands, now sent into the diaspora, into Asia Minor, and trying to figure out how you live in society if you truly know that you have been liberated from this this dominance of maleness over femaleness if 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 you've discovered that that your thoughts your values your opinions your participation is welcome in the equality of a family how do you how do you live when the neighbors are kind of whispering as you go by and saying you know she's just you know got a little bit too much to say or seems like she's kind of you know the neck that's making the head turn of that guy that lives next door those sorts of things right so how do you sort that all out because the new testament theology is absolutely clear that what was broken in our relationships between males and females has been fixed it's been fixed by christ therefore we can be male and female in the image of god no hierarchy um no first dibs equality is what we were designed for so galatians 3 verse 28 is is the the theme of new testament gender theology and then in ephesians chapter 5 um it it helps i think set the context of peter saying what he does because in ephesians chapter 5 paul is talking and in chapter 5 verse 22 paul starts out kind of like peter and he says that um wives should submit to their husbands and if you read the rest of the passage you think the topic of this passage is the submission of wives to their husbands unless you go back one verse and verse 21 that starts the whole section you can check it out that says be subjected to one another submit to one another and then he says wives submit to your husbands and then he says husbands love your wives and at the end of it all he says so each one of you sub should be subject the point is that there's a new testament doctrine of submission that fits into the context of the recreation of male and female um, and paul along with peter say in, in in the in the face of this 
struggle, um, the, f- the fleshly struggle that, that we came across in Genesis chapter 3, if male and female are not living into the results of, the power of, the work of Christ, um, we might revert to our fallen bent, to our fallen disposition. And the corrective of all of that is the corrective of submission. So you fix dominance, you fix resentment um, by submission. So if I characterize what um, God predicted to Adam and Eve, I might call it dominance and resentment. Um, You're going to be struggling to control him. You're going to resent that he usurps authority over you, and he's going to exert authority. He's going to exert usurped dominance over you. We could talk about that for a long time. But it brings us to the question of today. What does this mean in the setting of today's readers? So let me back up and see if I can get our heads on straight on all this. Men and women were created to be mutually enjoying the truth that we are image bearers. We reflect the image of God. And the image of God is not male or female. The image of God is plural. Um, we're taught that the the nature of God is triune, and that he has always existed as a triune God, as, a, as an eternal friendship, as an eternal community. And the way that that was passed to us in creation was that in our maleness and femaleness, uh, we would live into the image of God. Well, we were not willing to accept God's sovereignty in our lives and relationships. So God said, well, that has just messed up your disposition towards one another, male and female. And and so what's going to happen is that, um, and it may even, without my saying this with any kind of authority, but it may even have to do with the fact that you, the male, have the strength, have the power, have the size. You, the female, do not. And so um, just as things shake out and you forget to worry about loving the other person or being concerned with the other person in, in every way, as you forget about all of this stuff, you just live into your bent. You live into the bent of, of strength and the bent of weakness. And if you can't use physical strength, you can use emotional strength or verbal strength or um, whatever it is. Um, and, and so all, all the way through time, men have defaulted to power and, and strength and violence, sadly. Um, and it's not for me to say how women have defaulted at all. But into this context, Peter is saying, you know what? What really matters is that the pagans around you see what Christ has done. And in particular, the, the, the husbands and dads of your families need to be led to follow Messiah as well. 
So he's probably talking, as I said before, to to Jewish families, Jewish slash Christian families on on the part of the women especially, and and notably, there almost always is a a kind of a lag between husbands becoming Christ followers and their wives having become Christ followers. The wives tend to become followers of Christ before their husbands, just generally speaking, statistically. But Peter is saying, um, here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to, to live in such a way, granted, in a society that is totally, totally bent towards the authority and the role and the place of men, granted, and you don't have to live with those kinds of, of biases or those kinds of, of values or, or even beliefs. But since you live in that kind of an environment and your husband is living in that environment and perhaps still um, pretty much in sync with it, wh- why don't we ask you to submit to your husbands? Now, what do I mean by that? Peter says, what I mean is don't convince him um, by the strength of your words or by the strength of your 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 intellect or brilliance then I should be careful even saying those terms but Peter, Peter says you're not going to you're not going to force this on him you're not going to manipulate this on him um what we need to do is ask you to live the kind of life before him that lets, lets the, the, the inner beauty that is you come forth. So Peter says that it, it, it really doesn't have to do with the, the way you braid your hair, the jewelry you use, or the, the lovely clothes that you have. Um, that's not what will compel him in terms of faith but what will compel him in terms of faith is this lovely uh, little duet of qualities that has to do with with being um, gentle and and quiet um, wrapped up in a package that is beautiful to the observer um, now think of that in the context of what I said was was decreed upon Adam and Eve. This is not a struggle for anything that Peter is asking for. Peter is saying, why don't we just try to, to disarm the whole situation? Wives, I'm going to ask you to submit to your husband, but please understand what I mean by that. I don't mean the paterfamilial model. I mean... Don't try to force him over, but simply without a word, by his being able to watch your life. And it's, it's a, a verb that, that means to be a spectator, to be someone who is gazing at. So as these husbands who are not yet followers of the Messiah, as they watch their wives, Peter says they'll be won over. They'll be won over by your beauty, not just because of your outer beauty, 
but because of this compelling inner beauty that will gently lead them towards following the Messiah, who is the one who is transforming you, wives, women, into the kinds of people that are delightful to God. Um, Peter says that God takes delight in, in these kinds of quiet, gentle spirits. So what does this mean in the context of today's readers or the setting of today's readers? And now having, you know, unleashed my whole um, instruction to, to women and to wives, let's get back to the guys. Genesis 3, the New Testament's correctives of submission and how strenuously the New Testament says to husbands, love, love your wives, like love your wives. Don't be, certainly don't be doing the things that you used to do or you might do because of, of this terrible male propensity in its fallenness, which is to use power and strength and, uh, and even violence. He, he says, get rid of that. Um, and if if we can be kind of um, you, you know maybe maybe we'll be flies on the wall just sort of listening into these one of these paterfamilial families in which there is a Christian wife and how she's living and we're watching the way she lives and um, we're discovering some things about her both in her created nature and her her new covenant nature um, th three things that i want to say and and just uh, i'll bring them right home to christian husbands because if you're listening to me today and you're a guy that's presumably what you are here you go what does this mean in the setting of today's readers number one she's probably right just, just let me invite you to let that sink into your thick head. She's probably right. I, I've, I have had experience of being um, a male, stubborn guy for 64 years. I think I've been stubborn for every one of them. I think I came by it honestly. I'm Irish. I'm a guy. I had red hair. And Genesis three, sixteen, is truly in my fallenness. So, do do you understand, wives, th that guys balk at suggestions? If you begin a sentence by saying "you should," immediately your husband gets his back up. Sometimes they actually get kind of petty on this and they might record the number of times in a day you said you should or you should not. And so their response is to say, no, I shouldn't, no, I won't. Um, guys have this strange need to be affirmed. Um, we need to be told we do well. We, we don't like failing, um, and we don't like being wrong. 
And a lot of times, the 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 point of that or the um, the forensic test of it is when our wives start into the play. And while we don't like being wrong, don't like failing, the best observers of our being wrong and messing up are our wives. And so they might mention it. And in our guyness, in our maleness, we will resist and we will try to power up. So we will become angry, we'll become resentful, we'll maybe go in the cave. Um, and what I think we need to understand from this whole biblical theology of gender and even the way it gets parsed out into Peter's injunctions to, to wives, um, guys need to, to sort of pipe down and realize she's probably right. The hardest, too hard, things to say. The hardest thing for a guy to say was, I was wrong. The next hardest thing is, I'm sorry. The third hardest thing is, um, yeah, the milk was in the fridge right where you said it was. Because we didn't want to be called out, right? So I, now I'm calling out all the guys who are watching this, and a lot of wives are nodding their heads or elbowing others near them, so... Point number one, she's probably right. So what should she do with her probably rightness? Peter says, stuff it down. Live quiet, generous, kind, lovely lives so that when your husbands watch and they get a good look at themselves in the mirror and think, I I really, I was a jerk. But she wasn't. He's going to say, what is that? Like, why Why is she? So, she's probably right. So, if we could learn more and more to, oh my goodness, this is hard to say, to ask our wives for help or advice, um, we should. Because in all likelihood, she's, she's right. She also knows she's right. And that comes from the, the fallenness of Eve. Um, who will know she's right and will try to, in in her fallenness, use her being right to her advantage. But we'll, we'll not go there today. S- second thing um, of three about what does this mean in the settings of our reading today, her, her beauty is different. Peter says, it, and he's not saying don't braid your hair, Um, don't wear jewelry or don't wear fine clothes. He is not saying that by any means. But what he is saying is that the true beauty that a woman possesses is not what she does with her hair or jewelry or clothes. Our whole society around us um, just denies that and says that that's exactly how beautiful you are. You're, you're as beautiful as your hairdo. You're as beautiful as your jewelry. You're as beautiful as the way you dress. And Peter says, no, it isn't. And in, in the society that is um, trying to be age-proof, where we do everything we can not to age, um, Peter says, why, why don't you start looking for the, the beauty that is truly there. 
every every now and then you see a picture of an old person, an old man or an old woman, and they're caught by photographers, caught very beautifully, and their faces are hardened and wrinkled. You, you can probably picture what I'm referring to. Um, their hair is snow white or gray, and maybe if their hands are showing, their hands are kind of gnarled, and you look at them, and there's something staggeringly beautiful about them. Um, that's what Peter is saying. He's, he's saying the beauty of a person is not the way her hair goes or her jewelry or her clothes. The beauty is what's in there, in the essence of the person. So we need to, to practice that out more and more. As, as the world tells um, our wives, our moms, our daughters, um, that they're only beautiful when we need to defy that and say, no, 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 no. There is a, a more profound beauty that comes from the inside. Um, and oftentimes that beauty from the inside begins to glow on the outside. Um, so Peter's not saying they shouldn't adorn themselves. In fact, the, the, the language of the adornment is the language of cosmos, which is a bit of a stretch. But later on the, in the, the chapter, he goes to it, um, he says it's not the adornment that is the beautiful thing and the adornment is the way that um, the world has has had its appointed features you know sun moon stars all of the beauty so he uses it it's a positive term that he uses but he says these beautiful things that that are appended to or connected to a woman those are not the sources of her beauty. And guys, we need to redouble our efforts in seeing the beauty and commenting on the beauty of our wives. And the, the, the loveliest expression of it is when somebody who has, has watched his wife, watched and watched and watched, and finally said, I also want to follow Jesus the Messiah because of what I've seen in you. And those testimonies are legion. She's probably right. Get that down. Her beauty is different from the way that the world categorizes beauty. Thirdly and, and finally is that we all need to discern when to step up and when to step back. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, if I'm correct in the, the way I understand Genesis 3, verse 16, men will tend to use power or force. Women may tend to use um, manipulation. And, and I don't know for sure that that's the way to understand those, the terms and the, the predictions, but whatever that is. So husbands need to step up in certain ways and need to step back in certain ways. And wives need to step up in certain ways and step back in certain ways. So I, I would encourage us to ask, is this a situation in which I should step up or step back? So guys, I'll, I'll just talk to you. Step up means be the husband you're supposed to be. 
be the leader you're supposed to be. Be, be the man you're supposed to be. Not in a paterfamilial kind of a structure because that's gone, but in, in an egalitarian kind of a relationship where um, w- what you might have been prone to do was, was abdicate your responsibility. And what sometimes happens is that men who take very little initiative but, but defer to their wives, um, those, those men need to step up and, and be the person they're supposed to be. Do wives sometimes need to step back? Um, when you're inclined to pile it on, your husband is more fragile than you know, and he can't take a whole lot of piling on. I've, I've said before that I often in marriage counseling have a scenario where a wife will say, he always, he always, he always, he always, he never, he never, he never, he never, to which her husband offers no rebuttal. He simply agrees, I always, I always, I always, I always, I never, I never, I never, I never, she's right. But I've given up trying. I I can't fail again. So the best thing for me to do is just say, yeah, she's right. What I'm saying is that it's time to step up. And for the wife who's piling it on, it might be time to step back. Well, that's a lot of stuff to sort of pile on for Mother's Day. And as I said at the beginning, I hoped I could give some insight into the male brain. Whether I've done that or not, or not I'm not sure. But maybe you understand now what I mean um, when he says, it's not you, it's me. Yeah, because we need to understand our maleness, our femaleness, and it may not be you, it may be him. And when he says, in answer to the question, what are you thinking, when he says nothing, he's probably telling you the truth. And when you ask, what were you thinking, and he says, I wasn't. So let's be gentle with one another, husbands and wives, and especially blessings to our moms on this Mother's Day. God bless.